Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I like your tie, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, you don't yeah, usually I, don't wear ties. I usually don't wear a tie, but this one matched my shirt, and it was sextortion release day. So I, you know, what, what does that polka-dotted tie have to do with sextortion? Well, this one polka dot is the sextortionist, and all the other <laughs> the polka dots, dots are the victims. Are the victims. Oh, that's so terrifying. That's good. It looked good on video, too. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Creeps and Liars edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I feel like Creeps and Liars for a podcast about Washington is too vague. Yeah, aren't all our... All our episodes, yeah. the creeps and liars. They really are. Which which creeps and liars are you specifically talking about today? Oh, oh, we're gonna find out. <laughs> it could be any. We're gonna leave this a little loose and ambiguous <laughs> for the topics of today. Our listeners are thinking, <laughs> could it be me? Could it be easy? Finally, is he finally gonna talk about me? And that way, when when we get sued for libel, we can no matter who the plaintiff is, we can claim the creep that that he. Oh, we, we didn't mean we him. Didn't you no, when we said a creep you. or a liar. Um, is it? Libel or slander we'd be accused of. Isn't slander speech and... Yeah, but I think the publication of the... of the of the podcast would make it would put it in libel department. Well, well President Trump loosens those libel laws up. I mean, I don't know how we're going to stay on the air. Ah, you know, we'll be... get to Trump later in in, in our object lesson. lesson <laughs> oh sure, <segments>. oh sure. <laughs> oh yes, we will actually stay tuned for that because it's going to be good. Uh, this week on the podcast, a new study on sextortion reveals a widespread crime few people are talking about. Is a profile of presidential advisor Ben Rhodes a puff piece or a clever hit job? And President Obama faces a lawsuit over war powers from an unlikely source. And I forgot to introduce my friends that are here. Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And happy to be here. Happy good. And Ben Wittes. Hello again, Ben. Hey. We'll all be talking about this the today. The color-coordinated Ben Wittes. The color-coordinated Ben Wittes. Yeah, you really do look quite dapper in that, as Thank I have you. to say. Yeah, it's a good look for you. Thank just, you. I just never see you dressed up. I, I don't do it very often. Yeah, not that you dress badly. You just don't dress up. Yeah. That's this right. is damning with me, Chris. But we don't have Susan today. <laughs> we don't have Susan Hennessy today. Where is she? Susan Someone? is uh, flap, flap, flapping away to California. Oh. She's going to be gone for a week or so. Nice. All right. Nice vacation. Happy trails. Happy trails to you. Uh, all right. Let's start with this new study by uh, someone I've heard of did this study. Big study, never before done, on sextortion. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I think s- it's the monochrome, well-dressed Ben Wittes who I think did that it is. study. I want to say, though, that listeners, regular listeners of Rational Security have known about the sextortion study for quite some time, because I've mentioned it several times right. on, on uh, Rational Security as we were working on it. And this morning, we released it. Uh, what is sextortion, Ben Wittes? Well, and why isn't anyone talking about it? Because this is the, this is the shocking thing I think I found about it. this is the number of people you found that are victims of this crime. Right. So, I, I think the why people aren't talking about it question is a really interesting one, um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure I know the answer to it. 
but let's start with what is sextortion. Sextortion is the uh, uh, um, extorting or uh, blackmailing of somebody to engage in sexual activity, generally online, usually by threatening to release information, uh, uh, you know, pictures of that person uh, in various states of uh, sexual activity or undress. Um, and what we found, I, I started working on this issue back when Gabby Bloom and I were writing The Future of Violence, and we were looking at different modes of remote assault. And we uh, were thinking about drone strikes and cyber attacks and these sort of, you know, very classic kind of national security kind of events. And then I ran into this sextortion case uh, in which one guy in California had managed to essentially coerce a couple hundred women and girls all over the world into engaging in sexual activity, uh, generally sort of, you know, stripping and masturbating uh, for him, um, and had done it, uh, you know, remotely at a scale that was really hard to imagine. And so, Gabby and I were wondering how common this was. You know, is this just a weird outlier? And we started poking around about it, and we noticed that there were actually a lot of these cases. If you just started Googling sextortion, you came up with these absolutely horrifying cases in weirdly large numbers. And so after we finished the book, uh, I decided to do a sort of devoted study of sextortion itself as a sort of form of remote sexual violence. Uh, and we found a just shocking number of cases, so 78 cases, uh, which we're sure we missed many. Um, but these were the cases that we could find. Uh, 78 cases that probably account, we, we know account for more than 1,300 victims. Wow. And we estimate accounts for somewhere between 3,000 and 6,500 victims. And these are just the cases that have actually been prosecuted, right? There are presumably lots of other cases yeah. of this that either never enter into the judicial system at all, or get investigated but never charged. Correct. And that um, are, are also presumably successful, like the person gets the person just to never reveal it. Right. So, so some of these cases are quite forensically complicated. You know, these are not, you know, like, like other cybercrime. This isn't something that happens and you say, hey, somebody attacked me and you know who the perp is. These are cases that you really have to unpack over a sometimes protracted period of time who the attacker was, where the attacker was, what jurisdiction he's in. Uh, they're not simple cases. And uh, I think it's reasonable to expect that the number of prosecuted cases is a relatively small fraction of the aggregate number of cases that go unprosecuted. And, you know, the most amazing thing about these cases is just the sheer number of victims that you know, a given perpetrator is able to, you know, uh, to get. And I, I think, you know, this is really the first time in the history of the world that individual level sexual violence is a scalable offense in, so, in a Silicon Valley sense of the word. So these cases right now are being charged as what? Because sextortion is obviously not a crime in federal or state law. Right. So that's a really interesting question, and it's actually one of the focal questions that the reports 
uh, center on. So the answer is if the victims are kids, they're charged uh, under federal child pornography laws overwhelmingly. And those laws are really robust in terms of the sentences that they you can met out under them. But the crime is the possession or manufacture of the stuff. It's not the assault on the kid. Or the enticement or coercion of the kid mm-hmm. to make okay. it. But here's the thing. If you entice an adult to make pornography... Uh, that's not merely not a crime. That's generally speaking uh, constitutionally protected. And Just so consenting th- adults is that consenting what adults who want to make pornography get to make pornography. So there isn't a parallel to that uh, that statute as to kids vis-a-vis right. adults. Moreover, there's no. Uh, it's not a sexual assault because sexual assault laws require that somebody actually touches somebody. Um, Mm. and you can't actually touch somebody if you're in a different state. Um, So then what are you left with? Well, you're left with extortion, Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the cases get prosecuted as extortions. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, if you've hacked the person's webcam or or, or, uh, uh, Facebook account, a lot of the cases involve hacking in some regard. Uh, Identity theft Mm -hmm. and stalking. These are the big workhorse okay. statutes when the victims are adults. But the result is a very dramatic sentencing disparity between cases where the victims are kids and cases where yeah. the victims are adults. And the crime, in other words, the long-distance sexual assault, isn't even really what gets prosecuted. Correct. And one thing I thought that was, and this made me think of a point you brought up today when you are presenting the paper, you know, we don't think of these as somehow classically assault because no one's laying a hand on someone else. But you all pointed to a few instances in the report of people who were forced to do just almost unspeakable things. And in fact, left out many of these awful details because you didn't want to titillate people or give people ideas. Or, right. So you were quite restrained in how you did it, which I thought was commendable. Um, but enough to give people a sense, at least in the presentation today, that there's some truly horrible things these people have been put through, even if no one ever physically, you know, assaulted them Including, including by the way, some things that um, that it can cause serious injury. Um, mm. uh, I, I don't, just for reasons of propriety, I don't want to go into it, yeah. but but there are, you know, many things that you can force somebody to do that are not safe to do, mm-hmm. um, and that the person can sustain real, real lasting injury as a result of doing. Um, and look, we left a lot of stuff out of the report, um, and you know, we left a lot of stuff out because I don't want the creeps to find the report fun to read. Yeah. And I don't want to give people ideas about what, what, you know, hey, that guy got, had a good one over there. This is, a, is actually weirdly a community of people that seems to be in touch with each other. Oh, um, so creepy. I don't find that weird at all. That's, that seems to me totally in line with how weird like communities creeps, on the Internet form. and creeps. Hang. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm convinced of this not merely because some of them, in, in, in one very famous case, two sextortionists worked as a team. Uh, and the FBI, by the way, estimated that they had 3,800 victims, just the two of them. Um, That's astonishing. So, you know, but I also think that the vocabulary that the sextortionists use 
is so consistent between cases that it's only consistent to me with people who were talking with each other and swapping notes and, you know, boasting of their conquests. Can I um, go back? We had a conversation in last week's episode about Rule 41, a proposed change to Rule 41 of criminal Mm. procedure regarding the issuance of a search warrant for a computer when you're not sure, you know, where the crime took place. And isn't uh, these extortion cases, which are often taking place across state lines, aren't these uh, a population or a set of cases to which this amendment of Rule 41 would really make a difference? In other words, if they don't amend Rule 41, it gets a lot harder to get warrants in these cases. Well, so yes and no. I I can imagine sextortion cases in which a Rule 41, the Rule 41 change would be very germane. But the thing about the Rule for the sextortion cases is they almost all take place over platform platforms, on social media platforms of one sort or another. And so, you know, the real some of the social media companies, by the way, are fabulous on this issue, and some of them are really not. Um, but in the classic case, you have a kid who finally comes forward, and you get maybe acts her end of the kick messenger uh, uh, logs, you know, exchanges that she's had with a sextortionist. So you can see everything that they've said. Then you go to kick, and you say, hey... Um, give us everything about the account on the other end of this. And that will often identify location, uh, identity, or something that gives you something forensically to work on. So yes, there are circumstances in which you would want a sort of, in which you imagine like a hub account that every that a bunch of people are tapping into and you're trying to figure out all the people who are tapping into it. I haven't seen a lot of those cases, to be honest. But, the, I mean, the the revelations and the, the sheer numbers um, disclosed in your research are the kinds of things that, number one, make me want to go home and tell my kids that they can never have any more social media accounts on any platform mm-hmm. ever again, including, like, Facebook, where their grandparents are. And it also <laughs> makes me want to do what I always used to think of as a very dorky thing to do, which is take a piece of masking tape and put it over my webcam. Well, so, that's, so that latter one is one of our recommendations. Uh, and I think the hardware manufacturers actually have something real to answer for in this. The, the default should be off? Well, it's not just that the default should be off and that there should be a sliding mask on every webcam that just allows the user to cover it without putting a piece of masking tape on and looking like a dork. But why is it that on you your phone... You I said without looking like a dork. <laughs> okay, thank um, you. <laughs> why is it that the ringer on your phone is subject to a hardware switch? You can turn the ringer off. Yeah. But the webcam on your phone and your device is subject only to software controls. There is a huge, huge, huge body of material on YouTube of people's uh, videos that they made by hacking other people's webcams. It's called, they're called remote access videos. Remote, it's a big community of people who commit this crime and then share the videos on YouTube. Uh, God bless uh, the folks at Google. We sent them a list of these videos last week. They took them down quite promptly. We're sending them a bunch more. They've been very responsive. Um, but I, I, I think the hardware manufacturers 
really have something to answer for. One of the videos that I saw, this was not a sextortion video. Uh, I can mention it now because it's no longer on YouTube. But this was a video, somebody hacked a kid's camera, webcam in the Netherlands, filmed him watching pornography, uh, and then texted him on his screen, uh, I've, I've seen what you're watching, and then mentioned his name, his address, the school he goes to, uh, and this was, you know, and, and all of this made me think, why doesn't he have a switch on his computer that he can throw and his webcam turns off? Uh, and that, I think, is a question we need to ask the hardware manufacturers. Yeah, yep. absolutely. You can also, by the way, get these little clips that go on top. You don't have to use masking tape. So I don't have to look like a dork. I can look styling. You can look styling and secure. It's awesome. like a little thing. It's like That's a sort what of, I want. I kind want of stylish yeah. security. In exactly. fact, Folks out there in entrepreneur land, there's a market for this. Sure. Stylish computer security products. Yeah, I like it. Very good. Uh, congratulations, Ben. Well done. Thanks. It's, it's, a, it's an ugly subject to be congratulated about. But well, I, but, but it's, I, it's but some of the most important stuff you've done, I think. So. Thanks for throwing light on the creeps. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of creeps. Speaking of creeps. <laughs> You said it. Uh, now we'll move no, on I to No, I was it. talking about sextortion. Oh, sure. Time. Oh, sure. Um, so there's this. we got to talk about this. We have to talk about the profile. So many of you may have read in the New York Times recently by a journalist named David Samuels a pretty long profile of Ben Rhodes, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications to the President, a title that, as the piece argues, totally does not really reveal what Ben Rhodes really is, which is basically the mind meld, the guru, foreign policy guru of President Obama. Like the guy who I think Samuels at one point says, you know, when this administration speaks on foreign policy, it is in the voice of Ben Rhodes. Isn't Making that what strategic communications is about? Well, you might argue that it is, and it's about so much more, apparently, as well. Because as the piece goes on and on, it basically the meat of it that is most interesting to people who are interested in policy and in substance uh, is looking at uh, the role that Ben Rhodes says he and his team of strategic communicators played in the pitching and selling of the Iran deal to the public. Um, the piece has gotten a lot of chatter. I would say most of it resoundingly negative. Uh, in my quarters of journalists, people thought it was this tremendous puff piece. Uh, it quotes at length with no attempt to counter uh, Ben Rhodes talking about the sort of stupid, vapid 27-year-olds who are covering foreign policy and security who don't know anything. Shane, you're so much younger than I thought. Yeah, I'm older than Ben Rhodes. And for the record, <laughs> I've been doing this longer than he has, too. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you thought of me as 27. Uh, but no, it was, it's really, I mean, it, that's kind of like, you know, my, my colleague of mine who covers the White House, Olivier Knox, uh, said on the Federalist podcast this week, he took tremendous offense at that, and, and, and on behalf of a lot of, of uh, reporters who are, you know, not just that they're, you know, 27 is being bad, but, you know, this White House and this administration are not just covered by a bunch of know-nothings. And the assertion somehow that Ben Rhodes thought that's who he was dealing with makes one wonder, like, who is Ben Rhodes actually talking to um, when, when he's doing his job? Um, but I thought this was, I'd love to get people's reaction to the piece to kind of step out of the sort of the Washington bubble part of it. Um, I thought it was actually a remarkable hit job. And that this piece that was masquerading as this fawning profile of the aspiring novelist who found himself advising a president was actually a way of exposing uh, the sort of the, the job of, you know, admitted kind of cons and deceits that the administration tried to pull over on people on the Iran deal. 
Um, and it showed that basically they were using the, the White House and social media and the power of the press office to try and sell people on this idea that um, the plan was perhaps something other than it actually was and seemed at the beginning to give a lot of credit uh, to the White House for pulling a fast one until you get to the end of the piece in which he quotes at length Leon Panetta who kind of comes in and blows apart the whole idea uh, that was the White House was apparently, you know, trying to, to sell its policy on. Um, I won't get too much in the details of it, but I find these profiles sort of fascinating of, I mean, on one level, like, why are we surprised that the that White the House, House would be engaged well, in Well, that they spin. have a spin machine, yeah. and they're working her to spin, I think, is entirely unsurprising. I mean, I think there's a certain degree of inside the Beltway fascination with the profiles of the people in power, and you get a bit of a sense in some of the chatter around this article between this article about Ben Rhodes and the Atlantic, uh, the long tome by Jeffrey Goldberg after his multiple conversations with President Obama, that, you know, there's a sense in both of these that this administration is so done, like that they are willing to pull back the curtain. And so I think that lends a kind of added force of, of credibility um, to the narrative in both these articles. But I think when it comes to the Iran deal, I mean, first of all, of course, it's unsurprising that the White House, which had made this nuclear agreement a major, if not one of the major foreign policy priorities of their entire eight years, totally unsurprising that they would spin up an incredibly yeah. powerful machine It'd to market it. It'd be shocking if they didn't, right? right? But I think that although I would agree with you that Samuels in the piece works hard to suggest that there was deception in the marketing of the deal, I'm not sure that the specific points he makes on that hold up. And my colleague Suzanne Maloney actually posted, a, who is our Iran expert at the Brookings Institution and was heavily uh, enmeshed in public debates over the Iran deal, including one uh, debate, actual debate, with John McCain that was held here at Brookings, in which Suzanne was on the pro side and Senator McCain was on the con. Um, she makes the argument that, in fact, you know, the things that are laid out by Samuels in the article as supposedly deceptions by the White House, in fact, really weren't. Um, I mean, you can start with the notion that the interest of the administration, and by the way, the previous administration, in negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran was not a shock to anybody. It certainly predated the election mm -hmm. of Rouhani. Um, and Obama talked about it in his first inaugural, right? So the, the, the shocking revelation in the New York Times article that there were conversations that took place before Rouhani's election and it wasn't just about the election of a moderate government, it's, it, that shouldn't surprise anybody, right. in fact. And those earlier talks had been reported on before, so it wasn't, the fact of them was also not new in this article. And then when it gets to the, the, claims made about the way the negotiations proceeded, I think also all of that was reported at the time. And when the deal came out and we had this massive debate in Congress and ultimately votes in the House and the Senate, it was incredibly hard fought. I think the thing that I found most distortive about the article was the impression it created that the White House steamrolled this public discussion right. that was, in fact, incredibly <laughs> robust, incredibly hard fought. And I divisive. Mean, and very divisive, and the repercussions of which are still being felt on the Hill and in the public. And it made me wonder whether, 
in fact, you know, to the extent that there was a conscious decision or intent by this reporter to make the administration look more deceptive than I believe it was, in fact, was was that just designed to spin this whole debate up again and throw shade on the credibility of the of the deal, which but, is now so, a fact? So I have another question. This is a sort of zoom out macro question. Isn't there at this point in every single administration um, a article like this in which somebody uh, uh, who's up till then a just mostly hated staffer um, who has gotten a bad rep around Washington uh, among a lot of people uh, decides to talk um, and reveals himself as the Svengali who's pulling, or Rasputin, who's pulling the president's <laughs> strings. Mm-hmm. But that's and, not... And we all go, and we all fall for it. Um, and whether it's, you know, Karl Rove with, with George W. Bush, or then in a... Um, or um, I'm trying to sort of go through the... Uh, you know, the the role that Sidney Blumenthal played in the Clinton White House. Um, and there's just this, um, you know, how can the how can the president be snookered by this this punk? Yeah, who, I don't well, think that that's what comes through in the piece. It's not the sort of if only the czar knew. It's more yeah. in the other direction that Ben Rhodes's power and authority comes from the fact that he channels the president. Right, but that's exactly what well. we always said about Cheney. Well, <laughs> but I think in this case Obama would agree with the thesis. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and what's interesting is that this is a profile not of somebody who's been living in the shadows for the last eight years. You know, this is not the CIA director or something like that. This is the most quoted yeah. uh, White House official probably of all, yeah. of all you know. Although not always by name. Not always by name, but he he goes on talk shows. Yeah. He backgrounds the press. He, he on the records the press. He does a lot of public speaking. I mean, it's not as though he was a hidden force. Which is something that I found, like, really actually funny and just strange about this profile and why it was actually let through the editing process in the form of it that it was. Because it sounds like it's written by somebody who just kind of came to the subject of Ben Rhodes recently. I mean, to your point... See, he's, he keeps talking about how he like works in this windowless office, and you won't see his name quoted anywhere. And like, are you crazy? Like, if you cover national security or foreign policy, like Ben Rhodes is usually the one giving background briefings. If you're given a statement, you know he wrote it. This idea that he is somehow this background player was just bizarre, and it made me wonder. Now, wait a second, is this somebody who is sort of naively approaching the subject? Which I concluded the answer is absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that on the one hand, he tried to sort of build up this attention and an interest in this character by saying, I'm about to reveal to you someone you've never heard of, which, granted, many readers of the piece may have never heard of. But what I came away with at the end, actually, I had to go read a piece by Eric Wemple to come to this conclusion. But So Wemple did a, a post a couple of days ago with the headline, something along the lines of, did the White House know who it was letting profile Ben Rhodes? And it turns out that David Samuels has actually spoken publicly very forcefully against the Iran deal 
as he has described it in sort of an, an epic policy failure as a threat to security. And so this actually... Not exactly an objective reporter, then. Right, and not the guy you think you'd want coming in to try and tell the story about how you really, like, sold that Iran deal and what a great idea it was, which is what leads me to the conclusion that I think that what he really intended to do was sort of dramatically kind of set Ben Rhodes up as this Bengali sort of figure, I mean, comparing him to Holden Caulfield a few times, and, like, there were, like, eight Don DeLillo references in this, this, like, bizarrely, like, literary kind of setup, and then, like, this masterful job they did selling the Iran plan, and then when you get to the end, you realize that Samuels is just exposing it as, like, what he thinks is his con job. And he never says that, and by the way, I personally think this deal was dangerous, but now that you know that he does... So I you think, think myself, it was like, all cooked to make the Iran deal look bad? I think that the White House didn't vet the guy who was profiling Ben Rhodes. Well, And who they let spawn him around, which is really a condemnation of their strategic communications operation. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, I would note that um, in response to your mentioning that the White House press corps was perhaps not entirely pleased with the way they were described by yes. Rhodes in this piece, I, I understand that Dennis McDonough, the president's chief of staff, Brought the White House press corps donuts yep. this morning. Bottom donuts. So because they are mature, experienced, committed professionals, I'm sure the donuts took care of it. Yeah. They're good now, right? Oh, you can totally buy us off with donuts. Yeah. Can I just say that one of these days on rational security, we should have a uh, discussion of the sub the the whole field of strategic communications, because. Can we just have a discussion of the use of the word strategic as a modifier? <laughs> like, I, 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 I think when you say some, like, I don't have a problem with you if you say, you know, that, that Shane guy, he, he's a really good strategic thinker. I don't think that's an inherently meaningless concept. But I do think the concept of strategic communications is inherently meaningless. And somebody who purports to be an expert in strategic communications or the strategic communications guru, to me it sounds a little bit like saying, um, you know, I'm, I, I have a mind meld with the president on, you know, on, on <coughs> magic. They might, though. They might. We they don't might. know that. But what we do know is that Ben Rhodes is the guy with the pen. Yeah. And in government... Being the guy with a pen is a very powerful position. Yeah, it is. There, there is. That's that's really what this is that's about, what right? It's about this is about the power of the pen. Yep. Yeah, and strategic communications and all the rest of it around that are just sort of you know. By the way, of speaking of the power of the pen, and this is a perfect lead into the next subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't. We're not. We haven't run it yet, but tomorrow Lawfare is going to run a piece by it's a Thursday. woman yeah. named Rebecca Ingber on. Um, <laughs> This lawsuit that we're about to talk about. Okay. about um, and one of the arguments that Rebecca uh, Ingber makes is, as a general matter, is that the government agent, the agency within the executive branch that holds the pen when it comes time to write, is the inherently powerful agency in, uh, in drafting, creating policy, and that suits like this change who holds the pen and put them in the hands that are most about executive authority. And so I think Tammy's point about Ben Rhodes being the guy with the power of the pen is interesting in light of Becca Ingber's point that the power of the pen within the executive branch is a very understudied academic, academically, a very understudied thing who within the agency is the 
the interagency is the is the group that actually sits down and writes. You know, it's a very interesting point, and I guess this is where something like a, a newspaper, a news magazine's profile of Ben Rhodes goes beyond the sort of inside the Beltway snark that we, that we often occupy ourselves with here in D.C. and gets to substantive policy issues. There's a lot of times when people say people are policy and um, and that, you know, these process issues actually matter much, much more than a lot of people quite understand. Who has the pen on a given issue um, does have tremendous power. The, the ability to frame an issue for the rest of the interagency, the ability to create the language, which others can then amend, attempt to eviscerate, but often the framing that you create can stand through a lot of happy to glad kind of revisions. And, uh, and it's an interesting question, who would be the primary drafter of a new AUMF, which is, which is the next subject on the table. There was a, a lawsuit, uh, announced this week, um, by a young army officer, a captain, 28 years old, uh, an intelligence officer who's stationed in the Middle East in Kuwait. And he filed suit against President Obama over the legality of the war uh, on the Islamic State, arguing at that the old 2001 AUMF is, in fact, insufficient to um, authorize the, uh, the operations that he is now being asked to participate in. And, you know, he vowed when he joined the military to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and therefore he can't do this stuff. First of all, just politically and in terms of public discussion, there's something um, irresistibly attractive about a young army officer suing the president of the United right. States over who's, you know, respecting the Constitution. Is that a strategic move on his part? <laughs> Certainly a strategic communications right. move. So, How about career advancement? <laughs> so this is going to be a really fun suit to watch, yeah, I mean, yeah, just as be. an observer. But it does get to some really important substantive issues, which is that it was always a challenge for the administration to wage a war against the Islamic State on the basis of the old AUMF. They've made some arguments about why they can do it while asking for a new AUMF, but they have found themselves constrained in certain ways, especially with regard to operations in Syria, um, by the lack of a clear anti-ISIS kind of or broader AUMF. Uh, and operating under the basis of this old authority. And so they've, they've asked Congress for a new one. Presidents has spoken about it regularly. But it's also pretty clear that they're not kind of out there uh, beating the pavement trying to get a new AUMF, nor have they put forward their own proposal for what one would look like. Yes, they have. I stand corrected. Um, so you have to ask yourself why, you know, they recognize that there's a need for one, but what is it that they're afraid of about getting one? And what is it that they might feel compelled to do if they had one that they don't really want to do? Well, so first of all, this suit is going to be much less fun to watch than people think it is. And the reason is, is that it is very unlikely to go anywhere. Um, the... There's but there's a, a young officer in uniform suing the president of the United States. Yes, and I want the truth. And Tom Cruise, you said. can't handle the truth. <laughs> um, and they, they're they're uh, a young officer. He may be, but whether he has standing to bring the suit is a is a very different question. 
And there's also a serious question whether uh, the political question doctrine, which uh, we can talk about if you want, precludes the suit. But, but then, even if it doesn't, and even if you get to it, uh, the idea that the judiciary is going to parse the AUMF and, uh, and determine, quite apart from whether I think there should be a new AUMF, and I do think there should be a new AUMF, I've been arguing that for years, uh, the idea that the judiciary is going to say an, an al-Qaeda successor organization is not covered by the AUMF when Congress thinks it is, and when the president thinks it is, and when Congress continues to fund operations um, under the AUMF and the president regards it as covering it, I find just very hard to believe. And so I think that the uh, case will peter out in any of several ways um, and, you know, probably won't have the effect of causing the executive to uh, need to go to Congress and say, please, please, please give us a new AUMF. But may, and this is Rebecca Ingber's point, may have the effect of causing the courts to say, yeah, it's fine because you don't have standing, or it's fine because it's up to Congress and the president, or it's fine because actually the president does have the authority to wage this war under, under this AUMF. And that could really strengthen by moving, uh, by moving the the, the the unit with the pen to the litigators whose job it is, you know, to defend the maximalist position uh, rather than to figure out some accommodation. Uh, it could end up really having the effect of entrenching a more executive-centric and execu- a more grandiose executive theory than the Obama administration has typically wanted to take. I'm also just fascinated by, and I hope we learn more about this, how this case actually came to be. Right, and so, who's backing it? Well, so who's he's, he's represented it? by David Reams, who's represented Guantanamo uh, detainees and, and Bruce Ackerman. Yeah, and Bruce, and Bruce Ackerman. Yeah, right, who wrote a column in The Atlantic last year about um, the argument that the war against ISIS was uh, <coughs> illegal and raised in that column that a serviceman ordered to fight and it would have standing to challenge in court. And so I'm sort of wondering, you know, did Captain Smith write these guys and say, I would love to be said person? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it really matters to the question of his standing, right? I mean, I guess that's not separate a separate question from how he actually got attached to the case. But, man, it just seems to me like from the political optics of this, you know, when you have, you know, a, an, a, you know an army officer serving in the Middle East suing the commander-in-chief, arguing that, you know, his conscience does not allow him to do what he's being ordered to do, I mean... I hate sometimes this construct of, like, imagine if this were a different president, but just imagine if this were President Donald Trump, right? And, right. I mean, this guy would be being held up in some quarters as a hero. Well, but so, so, so hang on. In the well, normal they, way... What if he's the guy I'm suing over torture but or the, something? The normal way this would present is not I'm asking for an injunction uh, as a preliminary matter, but you refuse the order. Right. right. You receive the order. You refuse it. You get prosecuted. Your or or the, what the government takes whatever action it takes against you, and then you defend yourself on the basis that the order was not legal. That would be the normal way that a case like like that would be presented. The oddity here <clears throat> is that he's not merely seeking to pr- protect his conscience. 
by preventing himself from having to carry out such an order. He's trying to prevent the commander-in-chief from issuing such an order to anyone else mm -hmm. either. Right. Okay, so that's interesting. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, though, Ben, because you suggested that if, you know, folks like Bruce Ackerman, who are interested in constraining executive power, um, uh, are the ones behind the suit, that the suit could have the paradoxical effect of producing a greater concentration of executive power when it comes to use of force. Yes. Did I get you right on you that? You did. I think, I think the likely result of this case is that it gets thrown out on some jurisdictional ground, and the result, and, and, and the consequence is that Bruce Ackerman and David Reams, uh, will have clarified that, that that the they, president can do whatever the president he can bloody do whatever well he wants, wants, and the courts aren't going to get involved. Hmm. Somehow, I think that's not what they're hoping happens. I'm uh, guessing not. You know, and and Bruce and, Ackerman, if you're listening, please write us with a comment. We'd like to talk <laughs> about it some more. Wave off, Bruce. And look, you know, there is a model for this, which is the Guantanamo litigation, about which David Reams knows something. Um, having litigated a, a fair bit of it. And in that, you know, all the Guantanamo lawyers really thought they were, you know, setting up a situation in which they were going to get their clients free and close Guantanamo. And what they actually set up was a situation in which the president's authority to detain their clients under the AUMF was validated by the courts. Bruce Ackerman, you are cursed. Well, that wasn't Bruce democracy. Ackerman. That was David Reams. Oh, sorry, David but, Reams. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Well, the imperial presidency. Godspeed, Captain. <laughs> Hope you're not right. putting, putting in for a transfer to the Arctic Circle or anything. <laughs> You'll see. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll revisit it when yeah. when, when he when gets there's... transferred to the Arctic Circle. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Uh, all right. Let's move on to uh, object lessons. Uh, I guess I'll go first. Um, so everyone keeps talking about the 26 pages. They're sorry, the 28 pages uh, from the congressional inquiry into 9/11 that are purported to show Saudi support for the hijackers in the United States. It might be declassified soon. Uh, my object is actually 80,000 pages. That's a lot of pages, Shane. It's, it's, it's 79,000 and change more than 28. That much I know. Uh -huh. uh, 80,000 pages currently under review and have been for two years. That's a big object, 80,000 80, pages. pages. It's a that, large that's object. That's one that goes thud when you... Yes. Put it on the table. Uh, that has been for the past two years under in-camera review by a district judge in Florida who is going through them, presumably one at a time, to decide what can be declassified. And these 80 pages, 80,000 pages, constitute all of the files from the Tampa FBI field office's investigation into the 9-11 attacks. And the way this came about was there is this, uh, I'm going to write about this this week, you hear more about it, but um, there have for years been allegations that a Saudi family living at a posh gated community in Sarasota, Florida, had connections to Muhammad Atta and two of the other 9-11 hijackers. Um, neighbors after the 9-11 attacks reported uh, suspicious activity that had been going on at this house where this family, who are Saudi, had been living. The postal carrier noted that the mail had been piling up. And when initially investigators went to check this out, they found um, food still on the table, toys still floating in the pool, all the furniture and all the clothes and all the jewelry still home, a safe opened with nothing inside of it, and no sign of the occupants, who apparently left the country in quite a hurry in the weeks before the attacks, leading to questions about whether or not they were connected, because there apparently are also said to be um, logs from the gate showing that a car registered to Muhammad Atta, was driven onto the property in question 
sometime before the 9-11 attacks. So uh, it's been shot down, this theory, by the FBI, but this FOIA lawsuit that this journalist in Florida filed to dislodge these records has now led to a judge demanding to see everything the FBI field office in Tampa has on 9-11 to decide whether there's anything about a Saudi connection to declassify. Wow. And it's, and it's only 80,000 pages? 80,000 pages, that's right. Which is Your tax dollars at work? Now, the Miami field office likely handled a lot of stuff, too, so that may be why it's only 80,000. It's just this is just Tampa. But leads to, the, and also Venice, Florida, where Huffman Aviation was located, uh, right, where some of them... A whole lot of the planning was in Florida. Right, so a lot of this happened. So presumably there's a lot of stuff in there about the, the flight schools and other things that we might find, too. Maybe nothing that changes the narrative of 9-11. But interestingly, the joint inquiry into the congressional, uh, joint congressional inquiry where this 28 pages comes from, um, they say, Bob Graham, who led that, says, we were never told anything about this family. We never saw so anything about it. they never had access to no, these 80,000 pages? Not to that, well, not to these pages about this family, at wow. least. Uh, and the FBI is saying that's because there's nothing to it, and we'd shut it all down. But there are early reports and documents that have been released, including one that shows that in 2002 the FBI did open an investigation into the family and found, quote, many connections between them and the hijackers. The FBI now says, no, 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 that was incorrect. Wow, so 80, that's 000, quite an object. Forget there, the 28 pages, baby. It's the 80,000 pages. Wow. We'll be reading that into can the I, next decade. Can I just say that... I judge it. <laughs> yeah, tw- like the judge. I, I don't like this page inflation thing. 28 pages, <laughs> I can read in a sitting with a cup of coffee. 80,000 pages, that's a real project. It's a big project. This poor judge. Can you imagine? No, well, he ordered it. You don't. You, don't <laughs> you asked for it, judge. You don't here get you go. Any sympathy Two years he's been reading this crap. Ben, what is your object? So last week, uh, my object starts with a story. Last week we had what I thought, and 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 my rational security colleagues all thought was a particularly awesome episode of rational security. It had fun. It was substantive. We got amazing feedback from it. Um, we, Tammy, Tamara even got uh, an email uh, subject line, best period, episode period, ever period. So we thought... I think it's the know, best podcast period ever. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a great, like we got great feedback on last week's episode. So Thank I thought, you, everyone. Yeah. And so we thought it was a good time to actually buy a little bit of Facebook advertising for rational security. And boy, were we Try to increase the number of people who had access to rational security. So I bought a Facebook ad. I, I paid $100 to put the Never Say Never Trump edition again in front of, uh, we thought it was going to be 10,000 people who'd never seen rational security. And all they had to do was to click that little play button. They could listen. They could listen to it, and they could hear us, and maybe they could say, well, I, that's a podcast I want to subscribe to. That's the best podcast ever. Best podcast ever. And guess what, guys? That is not what they did. Um, this, uh, and we're going to post uh, a link to uh, this thread on on the show page, and what you'll see is that the uh, pro and anti-Trump forces, mostly the pro-Trump forces, just started using this thread to troll each other sure. 
Um, and <laughs> not, you know, not to listen to the podcast. No, no, I, we see no evidence that any of these people actually listen to rational security. They but saw the, Trump in the title. They had something to say about Trump. And by God, they were going to say it right. with graphics. And, and these things range from such moving uh, 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 things as Hillary is a lying, misspelled, murdered can't put more trash in White House, go Trump, go. <laughs> Wait, she's murdered? <laughs> yeah, she's a lying murder. She's a lying murder. Um, Who knew? To uh, what a steaming pile of unadulterated horse shit. Referring <laughs> to a previous comment. <laughs> exactly, not, not to the, the podcast. podcast. Not, the podcast. <laughs> because not one of these people listened to rational security. So I, I take from this a very important <laughs> lesson, which is that this is not a good expenditure of, of our marginal promotion dollar. It is um, highly amusing reading, though, if you want to see the quality of political discourse in our great country. So instead, I'm, I'm actually going to ask all people who are actually listening to this episode. Right, if you've made it into minute 48, 48 of rational security this week, Post a link to this episode of Rational Security on your Facebook page and tell your non-pro or anti-Trump troll friends that maybe they would want to check out Rational Security because it is the best podcast ever. 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 Um, and uh, so that's... Uh, and and then they can post substantive comments, comments on, on our Facebook page. On what page. we actually said. Yeah. yeah. So that's my request to you all. Uh, and you'll actually save me a hundred dollars in Facebook advertising uh, if you do it. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Well, that saves me having to remind people to download the podcast and leave a comment. <laughs> uh, and that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show archive at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and post those links. Our show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Ben Rhodes and his Mighty Pen. Ooh. It's a little pun there. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to say Ben You are ben so Rhodes tickled by this story. I think you have a little crush on Ben Rhodes' Mighty Pen. Oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> on his Mighty... I'm not talking... I'm not going near his Mighty Pen. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Nowhere near it. Nowhere On near the record. It. On the record. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> Just so we're clear. Oh, of course. Our music is performed, as always, by the lovely Sophia Yan. Uh, on behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. I'll talk to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.